We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Barn to Door and Acres USA, the voice of eco agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA magazine. On this episode, we're talking about bringing a higher standard to cannabis production. With the federal legalization of hemp and the continuing state-by-state rollout of recreational cannabis, the industry is just starting to pick up steam in the U.S. A California-based nonprofit started by David Bronner is aiming to lead the way on setting regenerative and socially responsible standards that empower farmers and farm workers in a rapidly expanding agricultural sector. In this episode, we're joined by Andrew Black, the Executive Director of Sun and Earth Certified, a Beyond Organic Standard for Cannabis and Hemp, and Josh Gulliver, a regenerative hemp and herb farmer based in Oregon. And we're going to talk about the challenges and opportunities that they see on the horizon for cannabis growers. I'm thrilled to share this interview with you today, but before that, we're going to check in with the fine folks at the Rodale Institute. Welcome to a monthly segment we're calling Transition Land. It's a collaboration with the Rodale Institute, and we're focusing on helping conventional farmers transition to regenerative organic practices. On this episode, Christy Wendelberger joins us to go deeper into the soil nourishing benefits of cover crops. Welcome back, Christy. Hi, thank you. It's great to be back. For this segment today, you told me you wanted to talk a little bit about nematodes and cover crops. Previously, we talked about the role cover crops can play in building soil structure and encouraging biological life in the soil. So what do they have to do with nematodes? And I guess, first of all, I should ask, what are nematodes? Um, So nematodes are roundworms. They're a type of roundworm. They're microscopic. It's really incredibly difficult to tell if you have nematodes in your soil just from taking a clump of soil and looking at it. They, there can be several million nematodes in just like a three by three foot patch. So there's, if you can picture that, that's a lot of nematodes in one small space. There's over 15,000 species of nematodes that have been described, but most of the nematodes that we know about are the plant parasitic nematodes because those affect cash crops. And so that has spurred research into them. There's a lot of nematodes that they call free living nematodes that they don't exactly know even what they do. They probably play a big role in in, um, decomposition, but those haven't even, many of those have not been identified. So there's a lot of unknown species of nematodes out there. And so, like I said, some nematodes are really important for you. They decompose, they help with soil decomposition. So there's some some that eat just bacteria and there's some that eat just fungi fungi in the soil. And so what they do is those bacteria and those fungi are decomposing materials and now that those nutrients are in their cells. So the nematode comes, eats those, and then what they release puts it back into the soil available for plants. So they can be very important, but then they can also be very destructive. So as an example, the root knot nematode is is one of the bigger nematode problem, problematic nematodes for crops. And, And what kind of damage do they cause and how do they cause it? 
they enter the root of the plant. And so they'll create these root knots on the plant um, that are the root nodules. So the only way you really know before you start seeing death of the plants, the only way you would know would be to pull up the plant and see the and look at the roots to see if these nodules have formed. And you can't really get rid of them because then you have to dig your plant up, you have to cut the nodules off. So it's not, you, you can't really get rid of them once they're there um, without, without a, a serious chemical, which in organic production you can't use. So this can be a big problem for a farmer. And how do cover crops come into play here in sort of managing and mitigating some of the effects that you might see from nematodes? So they are helpful that depending on the cover crop that you use, there really can be quite helpful because nematodes aren't very mobile. They can't move from one plot or one acre to the next really readily. Um, so they need to be able to eat. And so if you plant something there between your crop rotation, you plant your cover crop, it, and if it's a cover crop that does not support them and it's not a host to them, then they will die because they will basically just starve. It's also, um, it's important though that you don't just think, well, I'm gonna put, you know, you go out and you talk to your local extension agent and figure out what cover crop for the area you're living in, the nematode type that you have, and you know, you put it down and then you say, that's that, I'm going to not have any nematodes now because there will still be some in the soil. And when you plant a susceptible cash crop, it will increase those nematodes again. So it is important to include that um, cash crop, the, doing a cash crop and cover crop rotation. Okay, so cover crops can be used to manage pests, but that's a pretty broad category when you talk about cover crops. Talk about cover crop selection and the different roles that different plants can play in farming systems as far as dealing with pests. I, th I think that what's important to understand when you're working with cover crops is there's lots of different reasons to um, select lots of different kinds of cover crops. Some cover crops, if, if your purpose is not nematodes, your purpose is you want nitrogen in the soil, then you would want more cover crops that are um, legumes so that they can fix atmospheric nitrogen and then turn that into nitrogen in your soils. But if you are having a problem with nematodes, you know, if they like just wiped out one of your crops and you're trying to figure out how to get your pasture back, then now your selection isn't necessarily based off of off of fer fertility, now it's based off of, okay, I need to really find something that is going to help me with these nematodes. And that's when you start selecting based off of, um, you know, off of the research. And, and to be honest and fair, I can't give a general answer. There isn't a formula because if you live in Florida, the heat, the humidity, the, you know, the amount of water you have coming down in your soil type is very different than if you live in California. So your nematode population is going to be different. And then also your, um, the cover crops could respond differently to those different temperatures. So you do need to speak to, you know, do some research to figure out which one to use. But as a general 
rule, they find that legumes tend, while there are some legumes that can help with nematodes, they also tend to not be as helpful as other legumes. And even as an example, cowpeas, there's a study that was done in Florida where just within varieties of these cowpeas, different cultivars of the cowpea, um, you saw they saw differences in the impact on nematodes. So if it was a California buckeye, there was almost no root 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 knot nematodes in the soil after the California buckeye cowpea. But after they planted the whipper um, the whipperwill cowpea, there was a lot of nematodes there. So even just within, you know, you can't just say, well, it's a cowpea, so it'll work. You have to get down to what cultivar it is, which exactly, what kind of variety, what variety is it that, um, and will that work with my species? But if you go away from, you know, if you don't need, if you aren't thinking about fertility and you only want to care about the nematodes, then you can, um, it tends to be the cereal um, grasses that help the most with nematodes. And of course they provide fertility and they provide lots of benefits to the soil, but they, you know, it's not the same as, as a legume will for nitrogen. And those are a lot more common. So in helping with nematodes. So things like sorghum Sudan grass has been found in Florida that was found to be, and Oregon actually, it was found to be really helpful in slowing down the spread of root knot nematodes. But you have to also keep in mind, while it might be the reason it changes the population of nematodes is because it's changing the microhabitat within the soil. So what that is doing is making it not suitable for root knot nematodes, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be suitable for other parasitic nematodes. So that's where that crop rotation we were talking about comes into play because it will, you, you select maybe Sudan grass, sorghum Sudan grass for knocking back your root knot nematode and then the next, then after that, you, you know, you roll it or you do what you're going to do to, to terminate your cover crop and then plant your tomatoes and the tomatoes might do well, but meanwhile, there is other parasites that might have taken over that niche of the root knot and are going to start to grow. So then the next crop, you want to change that crop to something different. And you just want to keep doing that over and over again. And then when you plant you know, in Florida, often there's a, they, um, they have two seasons of crops in the, every year. And so when you do your cover crop, you want to, the next time you would want to check your soil and see, Hey, what, you know, is, what is my nematode population now? And it has another bad one increased. Well, then what cover crop would work for that? And then you go to using that one. So instead of looking at it as a formula, you just look at it as a prescription that every time, you know, you check out what's in your soil and, and what would not support the things that are bad and what will support the things that are good that you really want. So what's the takeaway? What do farmers need to remember from all this? I think, um, you know, they, that cover crops are super useful and they're useful for soil stability. They're useful for, um, for nutrients, increasing nutrients in the soil. And there are also really, they also can be really useful for, um, for pest management. 
in order to make get the most out of that and make them the most useful, you really have to pay attention to what you're selecting and make sure that you select the right cover crop species for the pest that you are having a particular problem with. And then it's super important to include that in a proper crop rotation that um, you don't want to just think that, well, now I'm using cover crops, so I'll have all the fertility I need and all of the pests will be gone. You have to, I mean, nobody would think that, but you know, just as a generalization, you need to always incorporate that as a, in combination with crop rotations. Well, Christy, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Ben. I really appreciate it. Christy Wendelberger is the Research Director for the Rodale Institute Southeast Organic Center in Chattahoochee Hills, Georgia. She's responsible for expanding organic farming practices throughout the Southeast through research, outreach, and education. Learn more about the Rodale Institute at rodaleinstitute.org. I want to take this moment to introduce our sponsor, Barn to Door. They're doing a new segment aimed at helping farmers, and you'll hear that later in this episode. But who are they? Barn to Door powers farmers who sell direct, helping them increase sales, access customers, and save time. They help farmers meet buyers' expectations through easy ordering and an accessible brand across online channels. Farmers use software, services, and resources from Barn to Door to manage and promote their business. The bottom line is this, farms that provide convenient buying and delivery options reach more buyers. Data show farmers can double revenue when they offer online subscriptions and direct delivery. Promote your brand, manage your orders, and keep your profits with Barn to Door, providing the capabilities and support you need to build a thriving farm direct business. Learn more at barntodoor.com forward slash tractor time. This interview with Andrew Black and Josh Gulliver is particularly relevant right now as three U.S. Senate Democrats have just presented a plan to end the federal prohibition on cannabis. This interview was recorded back in April, so that's not part of the conversation. But what we do talk about is the increasing need for cannabis producers to lead the way on what it means to be truly regenerative. Right now, we're at a crossroads. Does cannabis become just another commodity crop, or can we use it as a vehicle to transform agriculture? A quick note on the audio quality. It's not great. You might be thinking what else is new. However, the message is loud and clear. In this interview, we go deep into Sun and Earth certified standards and what that means for the future of cannabis. Sun and Earth, if you don't already know, is the nonprofit started by David Bronner, who's the head of Dr. Bronner's Magic Soaps, as well as an outspoken cannabis activist. The nonprofit has set ambitious standards for cannabis production that include earth care, human empowerment, and community engagement. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Andrew Black and Josh Gulliver. Josh, I thought we'd start with you. Could you tell us a little bit about your operation out in Oregon and why you've taken a regenerative approach to hemp production? So I, I started J&J Organics uh, shortly after the Oregon hemp pilot program was put in place. I started it with um, a farmer who's owned a um, mixed vegetable farm for many years, a place called Gathering Together Farm here in, in Oregon. And I actually, I made his compost for five years before the two of us started, started growing hemp together, kind of as a side project at first. We, we grew an acre um, and it turned out really well. So we... Um, we continued. John and I, well, John's farm was organic, is continuing, it's organic today. And uh, we, we basically, it was the natural transition to grow organic hemp. And also the, the vegetable farms are production farms. So we kind of had this natural inclination to 
really try to produce hemp, right, on, on, a, on a larger scale. Um, and from organics, that meant putting plastic down so we could avoid weeds, right? We didn't have to put as much labor into weeds and, and things like that. That included high levels of nitrogen and so forth, which is all completely legitimate under organic agriculture, especially when you're really pushing land. But as we got further and further into the hemp industry, you know, a couple of things happened. First, we recognized that no matter how much organic product we produced, we couldn't get it to the retailer, right? We couldn't find an outlet that actually brought that organic integrity all the way to the, to the person who would finally use CBD or hemp products for their, you know, uh, well-being. And, you know, the hemp industry has been a wild ride. So it was very quick that we, we all of a sudden, we went from an acre in a number of years couple of years later, we put in 22. Um, when we put in that 22 acres, it changed my, uh, my perspective in a large way about how to grow hemp. We put down a lot of plastic. Uh, even this year, which is two years later, I still roam through the field and I pull up plastic. And this is, again, it's, it's you know, legal, legal inputs for organics and so forth. But I, I drove about, I want to say it was 15,000 pounds of, of plastic and irrigation materials off the farm at the end of that season mm-hmm. and just drove it straight to the dump. And, uh, you know, and, and when I would f- reflect upon that, I wondered how much that actually saved me, right? What was that? What, what was the purpose of that? And, uh, you know, I, I've always been somebody who um, likes to identify myself as more than just a farmer. I, I'm somewhat of an activist generally, mm-hmm. and um, it just didn't feel right to me. So very quickly, we, we decided to eliminate plastic use. And rather than use, you know, traditional weed control, we would load the fields with interplanting of everything from calendula to sunflower to phacelia and, and all sorts of different things. And, you know, we quickly identified the benefits of that just from a, a pollinator perspective and, and, you know, ecological support system that we created here on the, on the farm. It just turned into something really fantastic. It, then, you know, about three or four years ago, I want to say uh, I was doing a, um, an event called Organicology. And I had the pleasure of listening to, to Andrew here talk about sun and earth certification. Now, you know, certifications are something that I've always, uh, I've always really been interested in. I, I like when certifiers and certif- you know, certifications kind of align with my values generally from the, you know, from the farming perspective, right through the, uh, the, the kind of social justice issues I like to align myself with. And it was pretty obvious right off the bat after listening to them present uh, in them. It wasn't just Andrew. It was also uh, at the time, I think it was Dr. Bronner's was also making a, a push for it. Um, and it was pretty obvious to me that their, their kind of uh, certification was something that we've been looking for. Now it, it, you know, at the time and even today, did it have the clout of something like organics? Not necessarily, but it was definitely something that, that better aligned with their values. They, they kind of brought in a little more of this, permaculture idea that, you know, justice issues today, all the way through our political system, you know, you can, you can kind of identify those things from the soil up. It's a ground up approach and their values just aligned with ours. And I think that's kind of a rapid story of starting the farm and ending that sun and earth, but that's, that's how we did get involved with sun and earth. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure how many farms Andrew has certified. I think we're up or I think you're over 40 now or something. But I think we were one of the earlier ones. Well, this might be a good opportunity to bring Andrew into the conversation and kind of walk us through Sun and Earth certification and why 
specifically that is needed in addition to something like say regenerative organic certification which has a whole sort of host of principles and and things that it abides by andrew could you kind of walk us through what sun and earth is all about sun and earth is founded on three pillars we have earth care human empowerment and community engagement okay so um where organics does a pretty good job of uh trying to get people to stop using synthetic fertilizers and pesticides Sun and Earth also requires that and, and goes a, uh, several steps further with the earth care portion of the standard and really promotes biodiversity and mulching, reduced tillage, cover cropping, and farms creating their own fertility on site. So someone like Josh, who has experience making high quality compost uh, and utilizing it and doing companion planting and cover cropping, already practicing these, what we would call regenerative organic practices, it was a lot easier for him to qualify for sun and earth and meet those earth care standards. Now, like I said, one of the, a, a very interesting thing about sun and earth that makes it different than USD organic is the pillars of human empowerment and community engagement. If you look at USD organic right now, it's clear that there's nothing in those standards that really protect farm farm workers or try and foster sustainable working relationships between the farmer and the and the farm worker right and so um we've added just some very simple principles that require written contracts between farm and farm owner and farm labor and requires a commitment to farm protections farm worker protections similarly we have added a community engagement piece to the Sun and Earth standard. And it's, again, it comes from this idea of simply requiring a written strategy about how you engage with the community. So we don't want to go and over-regulate the farmers that work with us. But if you have um, some simple rules that sort of shift the perspective away from me, 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 and put it outwards towards um, the landscape the workers in the community, then we've actually done something radical. We've we've shifted away the certification program away from just buying inputs and pumping out product and making money to, okay, wait, let's expand our horizons here and consider these things and actually um, have conversations with the firms about various aspects. So in that way, Sun and Earth is very unique as a certification standard. Um, And I'm excited to uh, to see how we can implement more certification in hemp. Josh mentioned that we have right now certified over 40 farms. That's true. And Sun and Earth certified was created with the THC cannabis farmer in mind. So um, we didn't create Sun and Earth to capture a, a, like all the hemp farmers in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, we created Sun and Earth thinking about how are these legacy homesteader uh, medical marijuana farms going to survive in like these endemic places where where they've been farming cannabis uh, for its medicinal purposes for two, three, four generations, right? So that was the impetus of Sun Earth and it's grown to include certain hemp farms like Josh's who goes um, way beyond organic practices uh, and has a commitment to our to the three pillars that I mentioned. Well, Josh, I'm curious. It sounds like you were doing a lot of the earth care 
practices already before going through the certification process. Um, I'm curious though, how that process changed your business or changed your approach, particularly the community engagement piece. Could you talk more about that? I'd say that the biggest thing that it's done you, you know, sometimes when you um, are, <laughs> and it, this is a little detrimental myself, but sometimes when you're required to do something, even though it's something that you really want to do, generally, it forces you to find the time to do it. And I'd suggest that Sun and Earth's priorities has, has kind of helped me align my own in terms of educational outreach. My partner here at our processing center and I make a frequent, we, we, we try our best to kind of do community outreach all the time, whether it's just at our local co-op talking to people um, about organics, about sun and earth, about regenerative agriculture and, and what that means um, for their final product on the shelf and so forth. But I think with the recent, you know, obvious with COVID, we haven't been able to do as much of that in the last year as, as we would anticipate. Um, but I'd say that's the biggest thing is it kind of holds me a little more accountable to make sure that I do the things that, uh, that I want to do right? To make sure I find the time to do them. And, and educational outreach is probably the biggest one, I'd suggest. And, and, and why is that important? And, and both of you can chime in here. I, you know, I think consumer awareness is something that's something that's always evolving. You might have people who are really in touch with, you know, where their food comes from, and they have relationships with farmers, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, cannabis is this thing that has kind of come, come onto the landscape over the last few years um, through legalization efforts and the transparency and awareness within that industry is sort of in its infancy a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm curious if you could walk me through and maybe contrast what you're doing with maybe what the industry is doing as a whole and how those two things are different. I mean, in other words, like how is most CBD product produced in the U.S. and how does that different from what you're doing? Well, I'd, I'd say that there's a lot of noise in the CBD industry. And as, as legalization cur occurs and continues to occur with THC, medicinal marijuana, and, and, and hemp, I'd say there's a, how do I word this? I can step in, can step in for a second. Yeah, do that. Okay. So the, the current model of agriculture is, is uh, being, being used in, in hemp production as well. So hemp for CBD production. You can think of a 50 acre uh, block or a hundred acre pivot, you know, where people are planting hemp in rows with black plastic and pumping them with synthetic fertilizers, not, not considering um, or making space for plant biodiversity within the rows or alongside the rows. So you've got really um, a monoculture uh, cropping going on with him. And you can see it, you know, come out to Oregon in the summer and just drive by any country road. Um, you can see it north, south, um, all the way into uh, eastern Oregon. You see it all, you're going to see it, you can see it all over the nation, right? Um, and so the type of, that type of farming, that it, it's non-organic and it's got, you know, there's very con little consideration to treating the landscape as a home place or a living organism. and and that's um, in stark contrast to like Josh's farm, J&J Organics, where they're not using black plastic. They're actually planting medicinal calendula crops, other medicinal herb crops, saving the seed back, right, from these herb crops. And now they've created, um, you know, they realize, well, we can't 
you know, maybe we can't make it just by selling our CBD, uh, our flour, dry flour bulk to another CBD processor. So they're processing all sorts of medicine um, in their own facility. And that's, you know, they've achieved that over the years and are having success. There are other hemp farms that we certify that we work with through Sun and Earth that um, do the same thing or a little bit differently. They'll plant hemp in, let's say, a quarter acre block or a half acre block alongside echinacea that they also mm-hmm. harvest and take to market or wow, you name it, ashwagandha. So there is a, there's a stark difference between a reality where hemp becomes just another commoditized monocrop versus hemp that is grown in a way where you would you'd let your children play in the field. Right. If I can touch on that, there's so much noise in the industry that the, the certifications are a very important to get so that it, it can, whether you're wholesaling or retailing, it allows you to kind of show people that you're trying to adhere to some, some level of integrity. I also would suggest that it's, it's hemp farmers, most of them have kind of come from a cannabis background. There are plenty that, that have transitioned from botanicals to the natural, you know, let me try hemp and many of them successful, but I'd say the vast majority, at least in my experience, kind of have experience in the cannabis industry. And if you've been growing cannabis in my, if you're my age and you've been growing cannabis, you've experienced it as a real illegal thing to do in most situations, unless you're brought up on the West Coast. So naturally, it's created this kind of very internal culture where people don't really share information. They've, they've been in their basement trying to do their best that they can, and, and it, it's not a collaborative environment. And I'd say that um, early on, you know, my, my relationship with John Evelyn at Gathering Together, his wife and so forth, it taught me that, you know, to do this on any kind of scale that's uh, achievable and and that you can be successful at and to do it in a manner that, you know, carries values and integrity to the the person you're selling product to. Um, It, it takes that collaboration. It takes getting out there and talking about it and, and kind of, I I guess, settling the dust a little bit, you know, and, and, and realizing that, you know, a, a vegetable farmer who's been farming for 40 years, versus a, a, a cannabis guy who's been in their basement for five, the cannabis guy really deserves or doesn't deserve, but it's going to behoove him to talk to that vegetable farmer to figure out how to do it on a scale that he can actually you know, produce a, a product that gets to a, a, a retail outlet. Now, you know, Andrew touched upon that and, that, and that's, I kind of have the privilege at this point. Early on, I, I mentioned we recognized that there was there wasn't a way to get organic product to the uh, to to a retail outlet to an individual, and we started uh, another Sun and Earth certified um, facility actually called Sun Gold Botanicals, and that's that's where we take our hemp and we turn it into products. It gets turned into raw oil. It gets brought right through to a, a finished product. And it's important to mention, I think, Sun and Earth on that end too, because it, it's about it's about kind of man, maintaining the integrity of the plant right out of the ground, right? And, and you know, Sun and Earth would never, never certify, uh, say, a, an isolate made with harsh chemicals that it's a CBD isolate, right? Has no THC, but it's, a, it's honestly, it's terrible for the environment and it's a terrible thing to make, but probably the most popular CBD product right now, mm-hmm. right? So, Sun and Earth helps us carry that that integrity all the way through. You know, that's that's kind of why we do the outreach, kind of why we let people know these things. I'd say 15 years ago, I, I was in California and I ran a microgreen farm 
And it was similar, right? They're microgreens for something I was bringing to chefs and they were like, what the, you know, what am I going to do with this? And we kind of had to do an educational outreach, you know, and, and, and now I think we're doing the same thing. And on our manufacturing end, we get to do it through, you know, white labeling tinctures for smaller companies that, that kind of want to put their own product on a shelf. And, and that gives, that gives us kind of this decentralized um, way to, you know, get information to the consumer. Yeah. Well, Andrew, could you tell us a little bit more about the history of Sun and Earth? It has a connection with, which I think some people are familiar with, but with uh, Dr. Bronner's, I mean, or specifically David Bronner, I believe. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Me personally, I've been involved in organic certification since 2005. And uh, I worked for a long time um, with Oregon TILF doing certification throughout the United States and also uh in Latin America, I, I ran the Latin American program for Oregon Till for a number of years. And so that experience um, really helped me understand standards and how to implement a certification program. And so in 2017, I, I was approached Dr. Bronner's, uh, Les Sabo from Dr. Bronner's about, hey, you know, we're in, they were interested in putting together a certification standard that uh, was for sun, sun-grown cannabis that went beyond organics. And so that's, that was the, the root conversation. In 2018, Dr. Bronner's funded us uh, to do a, a pilot program. And so we got together, uh, we created a technical advisory committee and we had eight meetings um, to create the standards. And during that time, w- while we were creating the standards, we recruited 12 farms in the Emerald Triangle in California. Mendocino, Humboldt, and Trinity counties, um, and Sonoma County actually as well, uh, to participate. So we tested our certification program um, uh, with those guys, and they they helped us flesh it out. We actually went to their farms twice that year, so they had um, two inspections each. <laughs> um, and so we we worked out the kinks. We we had a a sixty day public comment period, received comments, and then published our standard. And so since then, we've grown to 40 certified farms and we have about five processors. And our goal is to get up to 60 certified farms or manufacturers this year. Uh, and Dr. Bronner's uh, is the main funder. They have a, a program where I think you're probably aware of. Uh, it's called the uh, Constructive Capital. And they, they give away a lot of uh, philanthropy money to nonprofits that they're interested in supporting. Um, a lot of them are in the regenerative agriculture space. Uh, and so that's, that's where we fit in. We're going to hit pause on this interview for a brief segment from our sponsor, Barn to Door. Hey, this is Sebastian from Barn to Door. We help farmers grow and manage their direct sales. For this week's Farmer Spotlight, we have Josie from Dan and Debbie's Creamery in Ely, Iowa. Josie is going to be speaking in one of our farmer sessions during the Direct 2021 Farm Conference on August 3rd. Here's a sneak preview of what she'll be sharing at the conference. The concept of the milkman has been around for a very long time, and truly it's been a concept that we've wanted to implement in our operation for Oh gosh, ever since we started really. So we sat down and we're like, why aren't people coming to pick up their milk at our store? The number one thing that we kept coming back to is just 
the convenience thing. We're in a rural part of Iowa and people don't want to drive, you know, 20 to 30 minutes once a week or a couple times a week to get their milk. And so we just decided, you know, let's reintroduce the milkman. Let's make it convenient for people to get it. As we started doing these deliveries, we started getting people to just express their gratitude in a way that, you know, we hadn't seen just with our store. Like they we were bringing back memories that, that people hadn't experienced in so long. We have elderly people ordering from the milkman. We have young families. We have, you know, college students even that are ordering from the milkman. But our milkman brings more than milk. He's more of a modern milkman that delivers ice cream, butter, cheese curds, and then any other products that we carry in our store. When we started, uh, we piloted two zip codes just to see. We wanted to just kind of get our feet wet, see how things went and in less than a year, we've expanded into 15 zip codes of which are very populated locations. And it's offered another layer to our farm and just a really unique thing that sets us apart from many, many other places. If you'd like to hear more from Josie or any of our other speakers at Direct 2021, register to attend for free at directfarmconference.com. Thanks for listening. Describe how Sun and Earth is, is a necessary piece of this particular industry, you know, why couldn't someone like Josh just do regenerative organic certification, which, you know, Dr. Bronner's is involved in. And, um, you know, why was it important to have a, a specific certification for cannabis growers? Is that, is that because it's such a sort of emerging sector within agriculture? It's sort of coming into its own. It's coming literally into the light. Why, why was that necessary to, to tackle that sort of as a separate piece? Well, you know, I think back in 2018, when we started The Rock, which you referred to, it was just also getting started. Mm-hmm. And, and also, we were dealing with THC uh, cannabis farms. And um, I'm, I don't know if The Rock uh, will actually certify uh, adult use cannabis. Okay. So on some level, this certification was, was needed specifically for sun-grown adult use cannabis. There are, uh, I, I was a part of, um, and I still am a part of Certified Kind, which is a certification standard for organically grown cannabis. And that certification standard allows indoor farmers um, to get certified, for example, and um, climate controlled greenhouse. But Sun and Earth is, uh, goes beyond that and only certifies uh, cannabis that was grown in the, in, under the sun and in the soil. But, but the, need, um, the need was there for a high bar standard. And the need was all that was created collaboratively. And the need is there because these other most certification standards can't touch uh, adult use cannabis. It's still it's still too much of a stretch. You know, for example, um, USDA organic certifiers won't certify adult use cannabis, even in states that have legalized it. Josh, could you talk a little bit about your approach to producing CBD and, and other products, you know, you, you seem to have a big focus on soil health. Do you see like a big difference in the end product? I mean, uh, obviously I would assume the answer is yes, but I, w- I would just love to hear you sort of explain the connection between, you know, wh- normally when we're talking about fruits and vegetables and regenerative and this, that, and the other, we talk about nutrient density, we, you know, things like that. When we're talking about cannabis, we talk about like things like the entourage effect. It's obviously going to, in the direction that you've gone in is 
in your perspective, the right thing to do sort of from a moral, personal and ethical standpoint, but does it also result in a particular quality within the product? You're right. It's a complicated, it's, it's a complicated product to produce and the, the values are kind of dictated by the end and what you want to do with it at the end product. Right. So for example, um, we've been making um, essential oil, hemp essential oil. And the plant that I want in the field that I'm going to utilize for hemp essential oil is, is not the same one that I want to utilize for um, standard hemp biomass that we might put through a, an ethanol extraction to, to produce hemp CBD oil. So it, I, I'd say that, uh, you know, the, the biggest thing there is to start with the genetics. And we, we utilize different genetics depending on what we want to use it for. But I'd say that uh, my methodology in the field doesn't necessarily, it's hard to say that it changes the, the final product substantially. In the, it, you know, in our processing outfit, we'll, we'll have multiple farms bring us their hemp. And the final product is typically pretty similar when it comes to a, to a CBD oil, right? The big difference is terpenes, to tell you the truth, the smell. And that's why I mentioned the, the essential oil as well, because we only want to use, uh, you know, cultivars that produce that really heavy cannabis smell. So we can, we can allow that to transcend through the, the final product. But really, I, I'd say that the, the, the way I grow vegetable is very similar to the way I grow hemp. I, you know, we, we test the soil, we figure out what kind of nutrients it wants. One of the nice things about sun and earth is it, it does limit how much nitrogen we can put down. And, and one thing Andrew and I haven't really mentioned in, in any kind of depth is climate change, right? And all these things that we're talking about, all the regenerative agricultural aspects of this is, is completely related to that. We did, a, to give you an example, we did a, um, a test on dry farming hemp a few years ago. And this will kind of tie back in, but when we did the test, we determined that with no irrigation whatsoever, we only lost about 10% production. So as a farmer, I had to say to myself like, oh, okay, well, what, what does that really mean from an input perspective? I mean, let alone a climate change perspective, but what does that mean from just an input perspective? Can I farm you know, on even more of a shoestring by not applying water? Uh, to give you the, the, it, to give you the, the act, the number, it was 49 gallons of water produced one, uh, one pound of hemp on an irrigated field and 4.6 gallons of water produced hemp on an unirrigated field, which is a substantial difference. And we only lost 10% in our production, yeah. right? So I have to ask myself uh, as a farmer, um, it's those kind, of, those kind of experiments have definitely shaped how we move forward, right? And how much we apply and when we apply irrigation, for example. Um, but I, I'd say all those things, um, regenerative ha agriculture has kind of helped me move towards it, that, that goal of being sustainable. You mentioned earlier sort of using different genetics based on intended application. Can you talk more about your approach to, to genetics? I know it sort of varies by uh, hemp farmer, uh, you know, like I know one who insists on having male, female plants in a field. Yeah. What is your approach? Could you kind of walk us through that? We kind of have a nerdy yeah. audience that'll so be interested to hear that. So I, I mentioned that I kind of come through it. I come from a 
you know, a vegetable production farming background. So I, I don't want to see blanks in my field, right? So there's, and I don't want my hemp seeded. So when I put regular seed out, naturally I'm going to rogue through that, that field and I'm going to pull out all the males and I might have 20 females in a row and a blank of 40 feet and two females. And, you know, when I look at how to efficiently farm in the manner that I want to, you know, we're, we're tight, we're tight on margins. It's, it's hard to be a regenerative farm in today's uh, agricultural, you know, community, especially with hemp. Hemp is, it's a roller coaster. So the, the, I have, I have the privilege of being right down the road from Oregon CBD. And Oregon CBD is one of the larger hemp seed producers in the country. And they're really good at it. You know, they have $100 million of overhead and all sorts of things to make these seeds. What's nice about that is I'm keenly aware that uh, whether it's an echinacea seed or whether it's a hemp seed, it's going to grow better in your environment if it was bred in your environment. So naturally, that is uh, where I source my, my production seeds from. Um, and, and I source feminized seed only because I don't want those blanks in the field, because I can't afford those blanks in the field, quite honestly. And there's some great farms that are now trying to produce feminized seed uh, in a manner in which Sun and Earth supports and organic supports. Uh, East Fork cultivars is one of those. We, we use them for our, our essential oil, right? So they're also just in Southern Oregon. So again, it's it's kind of a privilege for us because they're right next door. And I know it's it's produced here in, in Oregon. I know it's going to grow well in my environment. So it's pretty simple for me when it comes to that. But it, I definitely would prefer to source seeds locally. Well, I'm wondering, um, and, and this question really goes to both of you, if you had to come up with a few rules of thumb for people who are looking to get into regenerative hemp, um, what would you tell them? For me, it's simple. It's very simple. My number one advice would be to, before you even think about doing this, cultivate a market for it. Too many, too many farmers have been left with thousands of pounds of uh, hemp and incurred tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars of loss because they went big. So start small, know your market. Right. Go into it for the right reasons. Also, I would, I would think, well, I mean, there's a bit of gold rush, right. In the beginning and very much so. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd also say that, you know, starting out with a, a regenerative approach, starting out with an organic approach, it, there's a, you know, there's a general idea that um, it's more expensive to farm that way. Right. And, and I think when you uh, approach agriculture uh, from a real kind of, uh, you do have to do it on a shoestring budget, but when you approach it kind of practically and say to yourselves, well, okay, if I plant, if I interplant with, you know, this type of, of cultivar, I can avoid weeding, right? So there's, especially when you're first setting up a farm, I think when you go into it with, um, with kind of those ideals and, and those priorities aligned correctly, you can, in two or three years, you can really create a, uh, you know, I don't want to call it a food forest, but you can create a, a real ecological system that, that continues to, to produce for you. And, and that is not going to happen with traditional agricultural and conventional agricultural methods. So Andrew's advice was to sort of know your market and have a market, build a market. Um, was, was that your experience? Did you go into it that way? I, uh, 
<laughs> I don't want to be too much of a cynic right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the hemp industry is a very tough industry to exist in right now. You know, J&J Organics has expanded their crop line by almost 20 cultivars that's non-hemp related this season alone, just because, you know, we, we need to, to, to continue to do things. We need to produce, uh, you know, we need to produce some kind of revenue. Um, and hemp alone, as a company that's, that's been fairly successful in the industry here, um, at least I like to think we have been, hemp alone would not keep my farm 100% afloat this year. The industry has gone from something where you're seeing, you know, 80 or $90 a pound price points to all of a sudden, you know, conventional hemp. You might be lucky to get a buck $52 a pound right now in today's market, which is a tremendous crash. So I guess not only do you want to be careful going into it, but you want to really do some realistic numbers and say to yourself, like, okay, you know, what am I going to put into this and what am I going to get out of it? It's, it's, a, it's a difficult market to navigate right now. And I, I, my biggest thing with it is do not put all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> you know, there's, it's, it's funny in, in it, J&J Organics is very much considered a hemp farm. And we have many, diff, like I mentioned, we have a lot of different crops on the list. And, and I don't necessarily like identifying myself as only a hemp farm these days. Yeah. because I think it's going to be hard to, to exist as just that. And what are the factors at play there? Just Well, um, I'll give you a very, the most simple explanation I can that, that last year it cost me about $11 and, and 70 cents a pound to get out of the field and I could sell it for maybe 15. All right. Even so, the high, even the high end stuff that you're producing, even yeah. organic, right. um, you know, biodynamic, uh, regenerative sun and earth certified hemp. You know, there's, there's customers out there that will recognize the importance of those, those ideals and those certifications and they'll pay you for them, but they are not, you know, with an industry that, that you can get on eBay and, and buy an isolate tincture that has, you know, 5,000 milligrams of CBD and they have no idea where it came from. You can get it for $22 or something. And then compare that to, to what we produce on a, on a, shelf that's it's much much different product yeah it seems like there's got to be a change in consciousness i was talking to a a blueberry farmer in oregon up in your neck of the woods and he was talking about you know his goal was always to produce the most uh nutrient dense blueberries he could and certified certified organic organic etc and he kind of realized that like you know wholesale distributors don't care about your nutrient density. They just, right. they just want your organic certification. So it's sort of like getting all these certifications and then expecting a big premium is, isn't necessarily, is that a realistic goal? I mean, no, no, yeah. it's yeah. not. I, and that's, it, you know, that's kind of, I mentioned that one, one thing about certifications that's really important to me personally is this, this aligning values, because, you know, I, th- I think once people discover what sun and earth is about and, and what it represents, then yes, that's those individuals that now have learned about it are, are going to see the value, going to probably try to search out sun and earth certified products. But yeah, it's, it's a, they don't always equate to, to, um, you know, profits or revenue or any of that thing to, to be frank. That like, that's clear, right? Like uh, the, the certification itself isn't going to raise the value of uh that you can get 
at the marketplace by three, four times, four acts in a similar way that some organic crops get, right? It's not going to happen. And because of that, we've created a, we have a scholarship fund that basically uh, allows us to do the third party certification, maintain our certification program on a shoestring budget where we only charge the, the growers uh, $400. So the annual fee for the certification is $400, um, which is a pretty good value as far as certifications go. Um, and, the, and it's a flat fee. So we can thank Dr. Bronner's, uh, their charitable arm for that because they're the ones that are uh, supporting this pro- the Sun Earth program and allowing us to do that. And I just wanted to, before we end in the call, I just wanted to show you this. <laughs> I know it's, I don't know if it's backwards for you, but it's, it's a, oh, I see um, it. yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a Dr. Bronner's hand soap that they, they created with um, hemp derived terpenes that oh, wow. Josh made. Oh, very cool. Say, yeah. And so we, we did a fundraiser uh, last fall and we had this as one of the fundraising items and so they have, they definitely have a, a hemp uh, uh, aroma to them. Do you want to say anything about that project, Josh? Well, that was a great project. I think that's one of the, that was, <laughs> that was a, uh, a very exciting project for us. I think just working cool. with Dr. Bronner's generally. That kind of really helped us break into a market that we weren't able to break into previously. And uh, it's primarily because of the hemp essential oil, right? You can now approach some companies that, may not want to get involved with CBD mm-hmm. or cannabinoids, but essential oil speaks a different different language to them and, and it's a little more acceptable. And I'd say the support, um, you know, th- this whole thing's been wonderful. Not only did we, we, we got Sun and Earth certified, but then Dr. Bronner's actually wanted us to produce their essential oil for their product, you know, for their Sun and Earth certified product. So it was, I, I guess in that that specific instance, you know, does a um, certification equate to revenue? Certainly, right? We would have never even been on their map had we not had that certification. So, you know, a very that's a, <laughs> a very basic way of putting it. But um, that that was by far a, a wonderful thing for us to do. It was kind of to the wall. We we only had a couple weeks' notice, yeah. <laughs> and basically had to. Uh, you know, we have we have these old hand pounded copper stills uh, and they're not exactly, um, you know, although they produce some really high quality product, you know, they only run about eight pounds of hemp at a time. So mm-hmm. it was it was all day, every day for a couple of weeks to produce what we needed to. But um, the place smelled fantastic. Um, yeah. Well, to close us out, Andrew, would, could you tell us a little bit about the future for Sun and Earth and what your plans are? I know that it's sort of rolling out in different parts of the country. Like I think there's a sun and earth place here in, uh, or certified place here in Colorado where I'm uh-huh. from. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm just cu- curious to hear more about what, what plans are for the future. You know, well, yes, yeah, sun and earth, you know, our goal is to be a, a certification standard that we can offer anywhere uh, in the world where they, where they have cannabis farming, uh, adult use cannabis farming or hemp farming. But uh, right now we're really uh, strong in California. We have over 30 farms certified in California, and we're, we're focused on trying to um, educate the, the marketplace in California to develop what I call like a truly green marketplace in California. 
And if we're successful there, I think that the same types of projects that we do where we're going into dispensaries and educating the bud tenders about why sun and earth is important and how we're making an impact and why consumers will be interested in having these high quality products. So that type of education at the point of sale is a, a project that we're focused on. And that's, that's different. Also, most certification agencies are not trying to figure out how to bring additional value to the certified farms or manufacturers beyond the certification, right? And so what we realize is that with this new certification and just certification in general, it's that point of sale education and awareness that's so important. So we've got initiatives there. We we hope to expand to the eastern eastern seaboard. We've, we're talking to some people in Massachusetts. And so little by little, just onesies, twosies, if we can certify um, hemp farms on the East Coast or even adult use cannabis in some of these states that are legalizing, then we can continue to, to put the information out there and raise awareness about these beautiful farms and how they're farming, why it's different, why it's important. And that's the goal. The goal is just is to raise the awareness about these farms and help them succeed. You know, the tendency in agriculture and all things in our culture these days is to point to technology and say, this is going to save us. And in agriculture, the technology that is put out there is GMO and chemicals. And these are suspects. We really need to shift the narrative and like, like, hey, look, this type of technology is inferior to the, the natural technology that traditional cultures have known about for eons and that we've added to. And so that is part of the message that ultimately comes out. You know, we're saying grow cannabis under the sun and in the earth. It's better for the environment. It, it produ produces a superior product. This seems like a no-brainer to a lot of people who are already familiar with the benefits of organic agriculture. But to a lot of people who know nothing about hemp production or cannabis production or even how to grow a tomato, the concept of natural farming is foreign to them. And so if we can, if we can bring this through cannabis and hemp, the idea of natural farming and how important it is to cannabis and hemp, then we've succeeded. There you have it. To find out more about Sun and Earth Certified, go to sunandearth.org. If you're interested in learning more about how Dr. Bronner's is creating regenerative supply chains for its products, go by Honor Thy Label, Dr. Bronner's unconventional journey to a clean, green, and ethical supply chain. You can find that in the AcresUSA.com bookstore. Use coupon code JULYPOD, that's J-U-L-Y-P-O-D, for 10% off on all titles. Acres USA is the premier North American publisher on production-scale organic and sustainable farming. For over four decades, we've helped farmers, ranchers, and market gardeners grow food organically, sustainably, and without harmful toxic chemistry. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tract Time brought to you by Acres USA and Barn to Door. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. Also find us on AcresUSA.com, EcoFarmingDaily.com, and don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.